This podcast is brought to you by Hound. Hound comments on style violations and GitHub pull requests, allowing you and your team to better review and maintain a clean code base. Try it now at houndci.com. Uh, what else? Usually we have some sort of witty banter to start. Is this it? Well, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Now we do the witty banter. Okay. Um, Begin the wit. Did you watch the new Star Wars trailer? I did. Okay. Much um, to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> is then discuss- she was like, I, I think discuss. I was going to say we could discuss it, but I think discussing it itself is a spoiler. So many people yeah. are so sensitive to these things that you know we just can't talk about anything anymore. I don't think I would have looked at anything and been like, "Oh, that's a major spoiler." If the director hadn't said anything, the director had said something. I didn't even see it. Yeah, anyway. the director said not to watch it because it gives too much away. Oh. <laughs> If he hadn't said that, I would have just assumed that it was all like typical trailer bait and switch. <laughs> Maybe he's thinking on another level. He's like he's he is baiting and switching you on the bait and switch. Oh, uh, so so it is a bait and switch, and he's making us think that now we've had the story spoiled. Yeah, yeah, that's next level. All right. Well, I guess we can't even talk about the trailer because I don't want to upset the internet. So sure. Uh, HTTP. Did you buy tickets yet? <laughs> no, I didn't buy tickets yet because they're all sold out now. <laughs> We bought them like an hour after they went on sale and there were only three left. Just for opening night? Or is it for yeah, like... Okay. for opening night. Yeah, I'll I, see it at I, I don't know. I don't think they're selling tickets for anything other than opening night that, that far in advance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I got an email from Disney saying I should buy the tickets. I was like, nah, I'm good. HTTP? HTTP. Yeah. It's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's a protocol. Up and coming. Yeah, mm-hmm. I hear I hear it might be the next big thing. Mm-hmm. No, so we had an interesting um, bug report slash series of pull requests onto Rails that um, I ended up closing, but I thought the, the issue was interesting. Uh, basically, the original bug report was that if you set the uh, referrer policy header to no refer, what Chrome does now is set, uh, is, is set the origin header to the string null. And so if you have origin checking for CSRF protection turned on, which I believe is the, de- is the default, that will cause CSRF protection to fail because null is not the expected origin. Let's back up a second here. Okay. Okay. Refer policy is something that can be set by the, the client? Server. The server. The server responds with refer policy, and that tells the client what its policy should be for setting the refer header to any links that or forms that are oh, right to, that are linked sent from this right. page uh, you can also do it with a meta tag it's a fairly new header okay so you can basically say like for this page for whatever reason when users click it i do not want to, i do not want them sending along a referrer header for any links on the page yeah right. you can also set it to only for links that are the same origin you can set it for only links that are the same origin and https right there's okay. like eight or nine different settings yeah, I think, isn't it by default browsers don't send the referrer if you go from HTTPS to HTTP anyway, I think? Anyway. That sounds like a thing that browsers would do, yeah. Okay, anyway. And, and so that, that gets into, like, why the origin header exists and why we use that instead of refer for CSRF checking. Because the original intent of the origin header was purely for CSRF uh, protection. Okay. And the origin header is basically exactly like the refer header, but number one, it's spelled correctly, and number two, it only <laughs> includes the domain. It does not include the full path. Okay. 
So the idea being that we couldn't use refer for CSRF protection because so few things were sending the refer header because of all the privacy concerns around it. And so the origin header being uh, more strict, the idea being that it was something that we could rely on existing more frequently. And really, you don't care about the path for CSRF protection to begin with. So I guess the thinking here on Chrome side is like, if you've told me no refer, that generally means you do not want to leak where you viewed this link from. And if I right. then set the, if I then allow myself to set the origin, I've gone ahead and leaked that information, most of the valuable information there, which is the, the host. So like in the example, like uh, I remember when Slack was first gaining steam, there was a thing that came out that basically like there was a default setting in everybody's account that enabled refers when people were clicking links in Slack. So you mm -hmm. can see like which not only that like somebody was talking about you, but like which company because it would come from like thoughtbot.slack.com, <laughs> right? It turns out there's a setting you can just disable, say like don't send the refer. And I think, I don't know, it should be the default. I don't know if it is. You should check your slacks. Anyway, so in that case, if like if it were fixed with by, by using this no refer header, refer policy header, but it were still sending origin, all of the valuable information would still be leaked. Well, some of the valuable information. The origin. I guess you wouldn't necessarily get like the chat room that was happening in, which might itself disclose. Oh yeah, a... <laughs> definitely for the Slack case. Yeah, right. that would be um, right. Yeah, because I'm I'm assuming origin includes subdomains. I think it just excludes the path. Yeah, I think that's true. Well, so at first I I figured well this is just a bug in Chrome because number one there is nothing in the spec for refer policy that mentions the origin header at all, and number two, my initial thought was. Why is Chrome sending the string null as opposed to just leaving off the header like it does with the because it doesn't send it's it doesn't set the string it doesn't say refer <laughs> null it doesn't send the refer header. I didn't realize that it was sending the string null. Okay. Right, it's sending the string it was sending it to the string null. If if it wasn't sending the origin header there wouldn't be an issue here because we we just skip origin checking if the origin header isn't present. Okay. So I, I figured well it's a bug in Chrome. Started looking at the through the Chrome bug reports, mm -hmm. and didn't see anything. I saw something somewhat similar where if it went through some code path, this was from a few years ago, but there was some bug from a few years ago where if it went through some code path, it would set the origin header to null, but it seemed unrelated. Anyway, so I I recommended on the issue. I said I was going to leave it open so that the core member who was originally looking at this could chime in, but it looks like a bug in Chrome to me. We should just report a, the bug in Chrome, and since it's an evergreen browser, I don't want to add a workaround to Rails because that'll end up sticking around for years. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so then the guy gets back to me a few hours later because he had gone into the Mozilla IRC and then sends me to a bug page for Firefox. It turns out, actually, Firefox considers the fact that they don't do this to be a bug. Yep. So now I started like... Now I'm like, okay, what the hell's going on? Started reading through various specs. And what I found was, so in the, in the origin spec itself, the reason Chrome is doing this is that in the spec for the origin header, it says, in any privacy-sensitive context, the browser must send the string null as the value for the origin header. Hmm. Okay. So that was interesting. And then the other thing I found was a quote on the Mozilla bug report page, which said that the server's behavior when using the origin header for CSRF protection must reject the request if a uh, unrecognized or undesirable value appears in the origin header, including null. Uh, and I, I started doing some digging, and I eventually found what that's quoting from is the Stanford paper that was proposing the origin header which basically eventually turned into the spec, but the spec doesn't include anything about 
uh, server behavior or CSRF protection because none of that is relevant to the HTTP spec. But it is mentioned in ba- basically what this paper goes through is the intent of the header and how servers are expected to use it. So while it's no, there's no official like, you know, may, may not, must, must not language uh, spec saying that we have to do this. The authors of the spec in their paper describing the intent behind this header said what Rails is doing here is actually correct. And what Chrome is doing is arguably correct. Mm-hmm. You know, privacy sensitive context is is vague. I'm guessing it's intentionally vague, but presumably I, I agree with the idea. If you don't want to send the referrer header, you probably don't want to send the origin header. This sounds like we're like becoming constitutional scholars here. While we're <laughs> to a certain extent, what was, yeah. What was the original intent of the um, founding fathers of the internet or something? I mean, that is generally speaking, the difference between a bug and a feature is whether or not the behavior is intended by the original author of that feature. Right. <laughs> I actually think it's uh, you could argue pretty strongly that Chrome shouldn't be doing this at all, actually. Because if you say the statement, if you don't want to send the refer header, you also don't want to send the origin header. The origin header has no reason to exist in the first place. Because mm-hmm. the whole point of it was that the origin header was something that could be sent in more cases than the refer header. And was, a, and was also a header we could trust browsers to omit in privacy-sensitive context. But I don't know that saying you don't want to send the refer header means that it's a privacy-sensitive context. What's an example of a case where you wouldn't want to send the referrer header, but would want to send the origin header? Um, when you're submitting a form and you want the receiving server to be able to verify that the form came from the origin, you know, a valid origin, but you don't want to leak what page they came from. Is there an actual use case for that? I'm just trying to think of like, what is, what is the actual, like, if you care enough not to leak the referrer, what would you be protecting by leaking the origin? Well, what you're protecting is you're enabling the receiving server to verify, I only accept post requests that come from these known origins. Right. Okay. I mean, you know, so in the case of same server, we do this, you know, with token-based authentication. There are pros and cons to that, but origin is a very, very quick and easy way to get 80-20 verification. Mm -hmm. And specifically, if you're doing stuff that is cross-domain, token-based protection is generally not an option because you need to be able to deal with cookies for that. Okay. So how did this conversation end up resolving? Well, so basically, I linked to all of these re- all of these relevant things. I'm like, it seems like Chrome is doing a thing that they are justified in doing. And it seems like Rails is doing exactly what it should be doing here. Uh, I think that we can, if nothing else, specifically raise a subclass of the exception that we're raising right now that has a very specific error message that educates people about the topic. And recommend because most people who are using refer policy no refer probably want refer policy strict same origin, which is send the refer header and then in this case for Chrome also the origin header, if you're sending a request to the same origin over HTTPS. Yep. And if you can't do that or if that's insufficient for your use case, then you need to opt out of origin checking because, again, not the spec but the the paper describing the intent behind the spec says that. Servers are supposed to, uh, are sub- if they're using the origin header for CSRF protection, they should reject requests that have a null origin. Okay. So I don't, know, I don't know. I'm a little iffy on like, there's this paper that was published at Stanford that says we should do this, so we're doing it. Right. But everything they were saying made sense. Yep. <laughs> it's also like trivial to bypass CSRF protection, actually, if we, if we start allowing the null value. Because anybody, anybody can have a form that points at your server yeah, and doesn't on a send... page that has refer policy, uh, no refer. Right. What are you gonna do about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, so we fail CSRF protection if the origin header is null. Right. So so the idea will be just giving a better error message to the developer that this is like, hey, you probably want to do this instead. Yeah, you probably say you probably want to do that, or if you don't want to do that, you need to you need to opt out of origin checking. It's a setting you can set it. Right. You can set it to false. So I want to do that, or you probably want to make whoever's sending you this form make sure whatever their setting is that they're sending you an actual origin header. Yeah, and I don't know. We should maybe open an issue on Chrome and be like, "Yo, I get why you guys did this thing that you're doing, but this sort of defeats the purpose of the origin header now." Yeah, I'm looking at an issue at a pull request for this. For I looked through the Rails issue, and I'm looking at the pull request, which was to add the request.origin equals null conditional, which would have that side effect, basically yeah. making it useless. And I should have said that. I should have said that on the issue. I didn't even think about that until right now. But literally, it is trivial for a random website to create a form that will have the browser send a null origin header. Mm-hmm. Which I'm guessing this is why the spec specifies that browsers send the string null instead of skipping the header entirely. Because bra- modern browsers, I believe, are intended to always send the origin header. Mm-hmm. So this lets you differentiate between this was sent from an outdated browser versus this is sent from a browser and the browser is specifically choosing not to send this header. This space intentionally left blank. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Well, that's interesting. Keep an eye on that. We'll wait yeah, for you to so- open your Chrome issue. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't find any discussion about it. So presumably there was a commit that introduced this behavior. I should maybe go find the pull request for that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, anyway, I don't know. It was just an interesting issue and it took, you know, it was... I, I don't generally spend a quarter of a day on an issue, but in this case I did, and I learned a lot about the origins of the origin header. And I don't know, it was just it was interesting. Yeah, and he, at the intersection between like W3C specification, white paper, security, browser behavior, like there's just this weird area of of trying to come to agreement on intent and actual implementation. Yeah. This is also why, you know, it's important to do a lot of research on these sort of things and be thorough and have a high bar for accepting pull requests. Because I think my initial reaction at looking at this was kind of like, yeah, okay, sure, this seems fine. Yeah, that brings up a good question of like, are there parts of Rails that should just get a new commit? Like maybe not before the pull request gets merged, but like a new commit comes in and it's like, it's in this particular area. We need to ping these people to be like, what do you think about this change? Right. (laughs) That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can get around that just by ha- making sure that the team that has commit access are people that you trust to have a high bar and paying the right people if they, if they don't know yeah. the answer and they know that there is somebody specifically who does know the answer. Right. That's, I mean, any change to this, I'm looking at the pull request now, any change to this code for like for forgery protection, I'd be like, okay, I need to make sure I 100% understand the motivations and the consequences yeah. of this change. Yeah, cool. Looks like you handled it well. Good job. Thank you. So. So you want to talk about GraphQL? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> so I wrapped up that project I was on. It was just a short project where uh, they had a GraphQL API and I mostly stayed away from it. And I think on this episode, I expressed like some exasperation with like this weird error I was getting in the front end when I was trying to hit this GraphQL API endpoint. And uh, I never really got to the bottom of that. But I on the episode, I was like blaming what I thought was Relay, and I think it actually ended up being a server issue, but I never quite figured it out. But anyway, I don't need help with that anymore. <laughs> so thank you to the people who offered to help, but uh, I'm no longer on that project, and uh, I passed on all my findings to the client. But anyway, after that project, like I hadn't done too much with the GraphQL endpoints, with the GraphQL endpoint itself, like 
different types and things like that. I, I made small edits to GraphQL stuff when I needed to, but didn't really dig into it at all. And uh, it was enough to get me to be like, you know, I wonder what it would be like to write like a GraphQL endpoint, a GraphQL API. And so at ThoughtBot, we have a internal system called Hub, which is where we do all of our scheduling and people tracking and things like that. So it has all the data on who works for us, what projects they're working on, what their ratings of those projects are, various things, their title, their mm -hmm. position, their historical historical information, etc. And so we have some API endpoints for that to enable integrations with third parties. And there's been more and more talk about like, boy, there's a lot of really interesting data in Hub that I would like to get at in some sort of way to build something on top of. And you know, for the most part, we all work here. We can just connect to the Postgres database and do what we want. But this seemed to be at the intersection of like, I'm interested in learning more about this. It's Friday. It's investment day. I want to invest in learning more about GraphQL. So you you implemented GraphQL for this in one in one Friday, is what you're going to tell me. Just about, yeah. Wait, um, really? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, okay, tell me more. Yeah. So, you know, and there's some caveats because the GraphQL I have implemented at this point is N plus ones as a service. Um, okay. <laughs> and it doesn't have any mutations or anything. It's read only. And okay. there's very few endpoints that are actually parameter, like very few, I guess, connections. You would is the GraphQL lingo of like an association that you can actually query on. So you've implemented a very, 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 very small, simple subset right. of GraphQL. I have a GraphQL API that you can you can send the base queries it understands are people, which is like give me all the people. It understands person, where you have to parameterize that with an ID. So you can say give me person ID, and then it takes a global ID. Locations and location, which are the same thing. And then within there, I have different types for like the actual string fields on the object, but then also like uh, you can get a person's title which comes from their current position in the database. So that jumps through some associations. You can get you can get a person's direct reports, which is an association you go through, things like that. And that's where all those N plus one queries come in because mm -hmm. when you're designing a REST API, you can from the outset say like, oh, I know I'm going to include this, this, and this, and I'll throw that in my includes query and I'll have all the eager loading I need. But when you're doing GraphQL, whether or not you're going to include those fields isn't determined until runtime. Right. So you have to figure out a way to do, and there, like I saw some proposed solutions, which is like introspect on the query and look for the various strings you need and throw those to the includes. And like, it just seemed a lot more complicated than that. So I've, I've kind of put that off to the side now. I have some ideas on how to approach that and we can talk about that in a bit. But like, it was just so super simple to get started to the point where like when GraphQL, I, when I first became aware of GraphQL was like a year ago or so when GitHub released their GraphQL API. Mm -hmm. And I think they might have been like the first people to do like a really public GraphQL API like that. There have been people using it internally before. And my immediate reaction was like, well, this seems interesting if you've got the situation where you're building a web app and you're building two mobile apps and maybe you have a public facing API as well. So like you have a lot of clients and you're trying to satisfy a lot of clients with one API, right? And GraphQL seems like a good solution for that because they can determine the shape of the response that they're going to get, the data that's in the response. Um, and you don't waste a lot of time either including or not including or, or returning expensive fields that the user doesn't actually care about, things sure. like that. See, I think it makes more sense, not so much for those cases, but where you have an incredibly large number of clients that you don't control. Right. I don't know if it's incredibly large, but yeah. <laughs> yeah well, okay, but just like you know, the list of users on the GraphQL homepage, right? Facebook, GitHub, Pinterest, Intuit, Coursera, Shopify. Like those are all applications that have a scale of clients that they don't control that I would expect 
it makes you know that I, I look at the, those names and I'm just like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This seems perfect for them. You know, they, people need to be able to write an efficient client yep. against your API. But if you control if you control the, the clients or even the majority of the clients. It's not that hard to make REST endpoints for exactly what what those clients need. Yeah, but those clients have differing needs, right? So like what your mobile client needs when it calls, when it asks for people is going to be different than what your web app needs when it asks for people, right? And they'll be subtly different at first to the point where it doesn't matter. But over time, they may become wildly different, right? And then you end up with like, I've got different versions of the API or I've got different endpoints I hit. I hit like mobile people or I hit, you know, like, which is kind of ridiculous. And then, you know, some of of this is solved by things like JSON API, which you can have optional includes and things like that. And I, I, I recognize that like that's also a potential solution for something like this. But I was really surprised at how like... So I started by building the endpoint that was like, just give me all the people who work at ThoughtBot and I'm going to return just like the actual fields on that object rather than like going through associations or something like that. And I was like, all right, well, let's add uh, an association here. It was like, all right, well, that was easy. Okay, well, let me go back and add like, let me add the locate, like give me all locations, right? And very quickly realized that it is so much quicker once you have the framework of the GraphQL API up and running it's so much quicker to add a new query to GraphQL than it is to mm. add a new endpoint to REST. Like, well, so let me ask you a question, though. Is the reason for that because you were writing fewer tests? Um, I am not and at the or point, skipping tests. I am not at the point right now where I am writing any tests for this. So of course it's <laughs> going to be faster. Well, but no, I mean, I'm not writing any tests, but I'm actually tab switching over to Graph IQL, or Graphical, I guess is how I'm supposed to say that. Tab switching over to Graphical, typing in the query I want to run, running the query. So like, I actually think that I may be paying a higher penalty by testing in that manner than testing where I write an automated test and just keep running it until it passes. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. There's probably some trickiness in testing. Like that's part of. I guess I would I would chalk that up to being part of getting that infrastructure up and running first. So to me, the one of the large questions, like when I made a commit in my branch, was like to do, and number one is like figure out how I should test this. <laughs> right. Uh, and number two was authorization, which is actually a solved problem. It's just something I haven't added to this to mm-hmm. this API. And number three was n plus one issues like everywhere. <laughs> right. So I got a couple um, of questions for you. Yes. Number one. So does the what you've implemented so far also have the filtering stuff? So like, can you can you filter you know person name Derek? Not yet, but that would be that'd be relatively easy. I'm a little concerned about how that will like because I've done one where you can say ID, right? And so like the person query requires that you pass the ID argument, right? But I could very sure. easily write one that didn't require that and just said like if they pass me ID, do this. But I'm a little concerned about how complex that gets like that implementation gets if you pass me a name and I want to do a case insensitive whatever on it. And I have to I, like basically I end up in this situation where I'm looking at the arguments that were given to me and then deciding based on the combination of arguments that were given me what queries I need to run against my models. Ultimately, I'm a little worried about how complex that's going to be. And I'm curious to see if there are implementations out there that answer this like in a way of like, because that's really the really my major uh, one of my major hangups now is like, in that rest talk i just did <laughs> i wasn't so much extolling the virtues of rest as i was like extolling the virtues of how thinking restfully lets you compose the solution very like in a manner that's sure. like very clear and leads to good i think leads to good design and for graphql i'm not quite sure that those solutions have been identified yet 
Well, and I think there's there's a big difference also. You know, I talk about like GraphQL seems great. I just don't want to have to be the one implementing the server for it because it sounds enormously complex. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I you know certainly what you've done was quite simple, but but like you've also skipped all of the things that I think make it complex. Like those optional includes without the n plus one queries, yeah. uh, because at that point you may as well just do the second HTTP request to get the, the association. Well, the the n plus one thing I think is interesting because that took me to a Shopify open source project called GraphQL Batch, which yeah. does um, you know it's different than eager loading, but basically it wraps all of these queries and promises and figures out like what are the what are the position IDs I'm going to be asking for and just queues them all up and then resolves the promises. Uh, right. when they're actually needed. And I have not been able to wrap my head around it. Like, And this is part of the problem, I think, with GraphQL so far, is that there just isn't a lot out there. Like, right. the, the documentation on GraphQL Batch, like, so many issues I see about this say, like, oh, and then I used GraphQL Batch. But nobody says, like, and here's how I used it in this situation where I have a Rails application and it has an association that's a has-many-through, and I use, the load- I use a loader that looks like this because of these reasons right mm-hmm. so like i tried the sample thing that's in the readme and it didn't work for the context that i was in and i was like oh i understand why this doesn't work for this context but i don't know how to modify it to get it to work so like it's to the point where i have to read the source of graphql batch to understand what i need to implement and what methods i need to override and and things like that and i haven't had time mm-hmm. to do that yet but that does it does seem like that's a solved problem it just seems like some more documentation and more blog posts and more evangelism about like these types of solutions is necessary so that's not just totally like i have no idea because like the client project i was just on i was i would laugh when i ran like a graphql endpoint against my local server because it would just be like a wall of queries and for their use case it didn't matter because a they were using they had a, a single page web app that was hitting this and b that single page web app was using relay so relay tries to figure out the difference between the information they have and what this view or whatever needs and just does the minimal query to get that. So it's pretty good at minimizing the queries that are needed. And so it didn't, like, performance problems were the least of their concerns, so it wasn't appropriate to really consider that at this point. But -hmm. at some point, they're going to run into this and going to need to be like, okay, what do I need? I I use something like GraphQL Batch, and how do I do it? And hopefully at that point, the solution of, like, how do I use this thing is a little more clear. Because I consider myself reasonably competent at this, and I was like... I don't, I don't know. I don't know where to go here. Like I read, I, I found one blog post from somebody that described how to do this. And it was basically like very similar to the readme, but a little bit more in depth. But it didn't like, it would have worked really well if my association was a belongs to and it wasn't. So I was like, okay, well, what do I do now? <laughs> you know, I say, I think GraphQL is really complex to imply. I think at least for the queries part of it, like, if you want to specifically say, you know, I'm building a generic GraphQL implementation for Rails apps that are using Active Record. Yep. Like, then that's now something that you can probably you can probably solve the vast majority of that pretty easily, and and yeah, make that really really quick to to set up. Yeah, and that's that's what I kind of want to see a solution for, at least in the Rails world. Uh, I actually set out doing this because there's there's been an interest in Scala here at Thoughtbot in Boston. Really? Yes, we have we have a project that we're doing in Scala currently. Oh. Yeah, we should talk about that sometime. But basically, it's a lot of data pipelining, and so Scala okay. is a good fit. And so we have some Scala dev going on now. And so I was really interested. Scala has Sangria, which is a implementation of the Gra- of GraphQL server, and it looks really really sweet. But I was like, we already have like. Originally, I was like, let's just do it. Who cares? It's just something that needs to hit another thing that needs to hit a database. But then I was like, okay, well, then I would need to build up some sort of model layer. 
And then I would also need like any sort of business logic. Like somebody gave the example of like, let's say, you know, you wanted to display a person's name and the model had name as first name plus last name, then your model on the Scala side would need to define name as first name plus last name rather than just using the existing name method on the Ruby model. Um, right. So ultimately I was like, you know, I've got too much to figure out with this GraphQL stuff alone that I don't need to also tackle trying to run a Scala project for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just looking at Sangria, it's using Scala macros, which makes sense. And so it's going to have a huge advantage because Scala macros run very, very late in compilation and have access to basically all of the information you could ever want about everything in the system. <laughs> yeah, it looked it looked really good. And it looked in particular like um, the Ruby solution for GraphQL, which is GraphQL Ruby, is written by this guy, Robert, I think. I don't remember exactly. Anyway, I'll link to the implementation in the show notes. It's not, <laughs> it's very thorough, but it's not the way I would do it. Yeah. It's very DSL heavy. And I would prefer to compose things out of just regular classes. And I, there are a couple issues where this is being discussed where I think that eventually that will be a direction that can go. You know, if the DSL is useful and valuable to people, I think the DSL should be built on, or it likely is obviously built on some sort of system of classes underneath and the challenge is like exposing that in a way that it can be used in a ergonomic fashion uh to get the work done because i would rather i'd much rather do that because it's a easier to test and b like i don't know like i open up part of my part of the reason why i avoided working on the graphql api at the last client was that i'd open up those files and i'd be like this isn't what is this this is this is a dsl and i don't know this dsl and i don't actually need to know it right now so forget it uh, <laughs> also, uh, authorization is is hidden behind the pro version of of the library, which I dislike. Oh, I think the, I don't dislike I, the idea of having a pro version, but authorization is something that like basically every user is going to need. Yeah, it's not that you can't do authorization without it. It's that I believe what it is is that the pro version comes with some adapters for common authorization libraries like Pundit and Can 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 and things like that. Mm. Um, because doing authorization is simple. Like doing so GraphQL. You basically only have one controller endpoint, which is right. query or GraphQL or whatever you want to call. And when you start your GraphQL, you, you initialize a GraphQL query with like the arguments, the variables, and then you pass along this context. And for basic authorization, your context would just be like current user is current user, right? right. Um, and then you would base your whatever authorization logic you need to do from there. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it's easy to get current user into there. And then I'm sure there are patterns and anti-patterns. The other, the other really awesome thing about going through GraphQL is that like it was so easy to just sit down at graphql.org and go through their tutorial and read the whole thing and understand 98% of it without ever having to actually implement it. Because like, mm -hmm. first of all, it's conceptually not that complicated. And then secondly, there are examples in line that are like, right. here, try writing a query against this and see what you get as a result on the right-hand side, like that kind of thing. And so right. it's very, it's interactive. Uh, so even if the tutorial is telling you one thing, you can be like, oh, what happens if I do this? And you're like, oh, okay, interesting, I see. So it was just really easy to sit down and go through it all. And it, the, the hard part about going through the tutorial was like, I would get to a thing and I'd be like, oh, I can use that like this. And then I would run off to try and implement it rather than like, no, I should just sit down and read this start <laughs> to finish. And like at the finish, they have like some patterns and anti-pattern stuff. And I think authorization is covered in there somewhere. But basically, they rec I, it was either there or somewhere else that I saw recommended like not doing authorization in your actual queries, but doing that at your business logic level. Sure. And also like like extolling some of the virtues of like it's, re it's actually really simple to do field level authorization which isn't as simple to do in some other contexts. 
it definitely seems like for just about everything you can do with a GraphQL query, you should be able to write a library that ta takes a GraphQL query and creates the equivalent active record relation object <laughs> with all of the includes and selects. Well, I would welcome that. That would be that would be good. <laughs> that's generally above like to me that's a layer above where I generally operate where it's like, "Oh, okay, I'll just take this and I'll build an AST and then we'll turn that into an active relate." Like that's like I recognize that thing can be done, but generally is not a, a territory in which I stray. But you love to build ASTs, so you should do that. <laughs> I I I'm more just saying this as like I'm surprised nobody's written that. The thing is it might be written. Like that's the thing about GraphQL right now is it's still early like you know, I, I, it's well, okay. definitely the, more mature than it was a year ago. The stuff that is linked to from GraphQL's website and that comes up when I search for GraphQL Rails right. does not imply that the thing that is takes an arbitrary GraphQL query and, you know, probably given some setup DSL that's like this uh, noun is this model, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that just seems like a thing that would exist. And I, 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 I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't. It just I don't see it. <laughs> right. If it does exist, it's it, it, it should be more prominently listed in, in some of the places that I'm looking right yeah like the next the next thing i want to do in this api is like a i want to i want to figure out this graphql batch thing i might end up punting on that i don't know uh because it doesn't really matter i'm not going to go to production with this api and if even if i did if it did a thousand queries it wouldn't matter but you know i'd like to figure that out at some point the thing that i want to figure out next is like how do i do a query that's like show me all of the people so it's a people query that work in boston so filtering the location by Boston. And I assumed that like the way you would do that in GraphQL was like you would do a people query and then you would include the location key and then you would on that location key provide the parameter of Boston. Right. That's but what you would do. I don't think that's the way you do it. I think you have to do it from the people level, right? Because you're starting your query at people. Wait, didn't you just say you do it from the people level? No, I said that you would put that query on the, you would say like location and then you would, you would put the argument of like Boston location. Oh, see, I was, I was thinking it would be people argument of location colon Boston. Yeah. And that's obviously what you, like I started to implement the, lo I started to implement it the other way and I was like, oh, okay, no, you can't do this because by the, by the time I'm resolving this field for the location, I already have the people. So I have to, I have to start with the, with the location up there, but that's what started getting me concerned. It was like, okay, well how do I have this one people endpoint be able to like query based on, I don't know, the location, uh, their title, all these things potentially in combination. And I think it's probably just going to be at that point, the resolve Lambda, you have, you end up specifying a bunch of lambdas in this, <laughs> in this, uh, rather than methods and classes. But I think that that will probably end up like instantiating a new class and calling a method. That's like, here are the arguments I were given, like people search or GraphQL people search. And hear the stuff and figure out what the scope is for this query, that kind of thing. I mean, it sure seems like, especially if you're, if the the way you structured it was you did the query of uh, people, location, hash, mm. name, Boston, or whatever you know the key for, for oh. location is. Yeah. If you were structured like that, because I mean, most of these examples of passing arguments to queries just looks like, yep, you could pass that to to, to where. But I don't think that that's the way. I'd have to look at like. <laughs> For so much of this, it's just like, let me look at GitHub's documentation because they're the largest like public GraphQL API. And it's like, I don't think that passing an object like that as an argument, I haven't seen that in any of the examples I've seen. I haven't looked at GitHub's documentation to see if that's the case. I think you'd be more likely to pass location colon Boston. Right. Or location underscore or location name colon Boston. And that's a thing that certainly for something like location where what the hell else would you filter a location by makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. 
is also a thing I want to make able to work with where if the because if the composed attributes API ever happens, it'll work with where. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll have to turn camel case into snake case, but I guess I can do that. Yes. <laughs> I haven't seen anywhere in the GraphQL API that like in the GraphQL documentation that camel case is what you should use. But in all the examples, camel case is used. But I can't tell if that's because the examples are implemented in, in Node and in JavaScript right. or if that's actually a best practice. I'm guessing it's probably a best practice and we should just stick with it. Does uh, GitHub use camel case? Uh, I think so. Oh, no, look at that. They have underscores in like some of their example implementation stuff. Hmm. Just looking at the spec, it does indicate... Their definition of what a name is allows underscores. So okay, then so maybe I can maybe I can keep my underscores. Then it also I think this is interesting. So it specifies the case sense uh, that the identifiers are case sensitive, mm -hmm. which sure makes sense. I just find it interesting that they specifically call this out. Underscores are significant, which means other underscore name and other name are two different names. Um, they call that out probably because of the needs of like. There certainly exist implementations of REST endpoints that will normalize those. Huh. Because they're playing to different... Or just removes underscores? Yep. And changes the Oh, I guess, if it, I guess if it's case insensitive, that would make sense. Or it like an underscore something, and it removes the underscore and capitalizes the next letter, right? Right. Well, that's, that's what I mean. So, right. like, I get that. But then the fact that it says it's case sensitive and then still says other name and, and other underscore name. And, and to be clear in this example, other name is all lowercase. Right. So it's just saying literally the underscore is significant, which I guess I like it makes sense. Yes, I guess it makes sense that, that the underscore would be insignificant if you were talking about converting snake case to camel case. And then if you're dealing with HTTP where paths are generally considered to be case insensitive, even though they're not. But when, you know, Windows used to be the most common server. Windows <laughs> file system is case insensitive by default. So therefore, we pretend that domains and paths and whatnot are case are case insensitive. Yeah. <laughs> I've certainly seen a lot of REST APIs that are like, they were built by Ruby folks, and so they use snake casing everywhere. And then yep. somebody's like, oh, but we're going to use this from JavaScript. And it's really kind of like in JavaScript. We'll use snake case in JavaScript sometimes. Sometimes. But then so like the solution will be, well, actually, all we're doing here is rendering objects as hashes. And to change the case of the keys would be a pain in the ass. So here, I'm just going to insert some middleware, and the middleware is going <laughs> to convert casing. Camel case to snake case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like Rust solution, where, at least for method names, if you don't snake case it, variable names and function names, if, you don't, if they're not snake case, it's a compiler warning. That's good. I've also, uh, unrelated to the GraphQL stuff, I saw that Elixir in its next version, the version that's currently on master, so I think next version is 1.6, I think, maybe, or 1.5, 1.6, I think, is going to ship with a formatter. I think all languages should ship with formatters and we should stop formatting our code. I'm very excited I am, about this. Yeah. Rust format has been around for a while, but it's very recently gotten into like, this is the official style mm -hmm. and the default style is something that I can live with and has less churn. And it's been very nice to just like on CI, we run Rust format Yep. and that's the style. And it occasionally will do things I disagree with, but... I no longer have to like leave 15 comments on you're violating our code style. <laughs> yeah, it just like, I don't know, it's hard because I have certain sensibilities, particularly in Ruby, where like you can write things so many different ways. Mm -hmm. I have very strict sensibilities and some of them are not even encodable in rules like RuboCop rules. Yeah, you have to give up on those basically. Right, so you have to give up on that, like where sometimes I'm like, oh, this type of method, it's okay to not... Like, if I'm going to split a long method call, my general preference is to, like, 
put all arguments on their own line and use parentheses. Yes, except, I agree with that as a rule. Except in some... No, there's no except. Except in some cases, like in my router, in the router file, I would rather have... That's more DSL to me, even though it is a Ruby method. So I'd rather say, like, resource colon posts. So the two most important things are on one line. There's this resource, it's called posts. And then carriage return, indentation, and the arguments for that resource, right? Rather than nope. having everything on one line. Nope. I've seen this argument too. Uh, I think it was Elliot used this argument on like belongs to. Yep. yep. Uh, that's another one. I su- that's another one I support. Yeah, no, no. Anything, anything DSL. Open new line. <laughs> See, but I would gladly give this, this thing up if it was just like, no, all code is like this everywhere. Now shut up. And I'd be like, okay, great. I don't have to have this argument because this argument is over and like, and everybody has to comply. Or not necessarily has to, but everybody is strongly encouraged. Like the language itself is saying, this is the way that you're supposed yeah. to write this. And certainly, I mean, you know, you could go the path of um, there are whitelisted method names, which have different styles. So for example, my personal Ruby style guide, mm-hmm. method called uh, to does not get called with parentheses. Why? Nor does a method called belongs to, nor do any <laughs> of the methods in the router. <laughs> Right, right. So because they're DLC, because they're DSL methods, but expect. But why is that exception okay? But my exception is not just because you don't like my exception. I don't like your exception. <laughs> what a jerk! <sighs> but no, like, like, have you ever seen anybody write R spec where they they put parentheses on two? Um, I will do it on two. Yeah, so it's expect argument dot two. Oh no! And then the the matcher. Yeah, no, I've never seen do that. that. No, I don't even like to put parentheses after the matcher if I can avoid it. Really? Yeah. So, so you do expect whatever dot to space EQ space whatever? Yeah. Huh. Unless I okay. have to, like in the case of match. I don't even have to, but I'll get a warning that it's like ambiguous. You'll need to depending on the type of argument you're passing to it. So what I, So if I get a warning from Ruby that says I have to, then I do it. Otherwise, I don't. Yeah, I always do parentheses for the matchers. So I do expect whatever dot two space EQ open paren whatever close paren. But once again, if a thing just did it for me, fine. Sure. Particularly if it just if I can just run it locally when I on write and it's like yeah I changed the file for you. <laughs> You're like, no, right, and so cool. and so here's the reason that um, I don't like your exception for multi line arguments. I value git churn as more or less the number one priority in style guides. So when you don't have a closing parenthesis, you cannot have a trailing comma? Is this what you're about to tell me? <laughs> well, so that's one thing. But no, it's also that if you remove the first argument, now you have to turn two lines instead of one. But why would I ever remove the first argument to resource? <laughs> Maybe not to resource. <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I don't remember or the signature. Or belongs to, or, you know, I would never remove the first argument to those things. But you remove <laughs> arguments, though. I okay, would... how about the last argument? Yeah, sure. Then I've got to remove a comma on the preceding right, line, right? Because thing. I can't have trailing commas because I can't have I can't leave off a closing parenthesis and have a and have a trailing comma. Can you? Nope. I think you can. I think you can if you put a backslash on the line after. Oh, that's not will not abide. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I've got I've got a question for you because I found it interesting how few people know how to do this in Ruby. Um, so you have a string. The mm-hmm. string itself should not contain any new line characters, mm-hmm. but the string is long enough that you want to split the code into multiple lines. How do you do that? Squiggly here, doc? No, that'll still split it into multiple lines. I'll just remove indentation. Really? Yeah, new lines stay in here, doc. Squiggly here, doc, dot chomp or something? I don't know. Let me see. No, it's literally just how do you have a string literal that spans multiple lines without a new line character? 
um, backslash? Yes. Outside of the string, though. Right. It's, it, it's exactly like it is in C. String literal, like backslash new line, string literal. And I'll, but everybody, I see everybody use the plus character or plus operator, which yeah. is bad because that, that's a know, method call. That's a method call. Does it at <laughs> runtime, allocates two strings, allocates a new string. Yeah. Mem copies them all over. It's also why squiggly here doc is way better than strip here doc. I'm looking at squiggly here doc right now. I thought it did what I wanted it to do. I use it all over the place like it does. No, it's, the, it's it the strip here doc method. Yeah, you're right. I think we've even talked about this before. For those who are wondering what the hell we're talking about, squiggly here doc, so it's like less than, less than, squiggly here doc block. And what that does is it's exactly like the strip here doc method from active support. And what that does is basically counts the amount of white space before the first non-white space character on the first line and removes that much white space from every following line. So it basically makes it as if you've done a regular here doc, but like if you have a here doc, but you want your, your string indented with your code, it makes it as if the here doc was indented to the very, very left side of the file. Right. Which you can also do, but looks ugly as all hell. Yep. And squiggly here doc is better because the parser does it for you, whereas the the active support method has to go look at the string and modify the string, and that can potentially be very slow. We basically only use it in Rails for error messages in exceptions where that exception is not, or actually almost always it's just deprecation warnings. So that's about the only time we want to have a multi-line string that is that long. Yeah. I feel like there should be a here doc format that says, like, also there's no new lines in this. Eh. Unless there's no new lines unless it's a completely blank line or something like Rust that. Rust does something that is closer to C, but I like it better than what C does, which is just it's a backslash inside of the string. Mm-hmm. If the last character inside of a string is a backslash, it strips both the new line character and all white space from the next line. Okay. Yeah. So it does the exact same thing, but just without the closing quote, because the, the, the fact that you put the backslash outside the closing quote is a little like funky. Mm hmm. Although Rust solution leads to a weird thing where um, if you do what they call a raw string, so single uh, quotes in Rust mean a character, not mm-hmm. a string. Yep. And so if you want to have a string that has a lot of double quotes in it, you go to what's called a raw string, which is where you do uh, an R character followed by any number of pound signs, <laughs> uh, followed by a double quote, and then basically the string will you know continue until you have a, a double quote followed by the same number of pound signs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you you always use one unless for some reason in your string you, you need, need a pound double sign. quote pound to appear. <laughs> but a thing about raw strings, there are no escapes of any kind. Okay. And so I've had some cases where I have a string mm-hmm. and I want to I want it to be a multi-line string, but I want to escape the new line and the white space. But the string contains a ton of double quotes because it's a SQL query for Postgres, <laughs> and I'm basically just screwed. <laughs> Uh, strings are fun style is fun this has been a yes. good this has been a good episode of the bike shed <laughs> how, do you, like, how did we get from graphql to ruby style guidelines um camel case oh that's right <laughs> that's right all right we should wrap up because i gotta go graphql a few things um <laughs> show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 129 as always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time.